All right, welcome to Ungroomed Media. This is our first podcast. Uh, this is a podcast in relation to men and mental health, where I, Dev Batra, will be hosting Peter Russell, who is a father, investor, commercial property magnate, and chairman of Snap Printing. He's going to discuss his own mental health issues, the things that have shaped him as a person, and so forth. Peter, um, why don't you go ahead and just tell everyone listening a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Dev, and um, I feel very privileged, of course, to be uh, your first interviewee. Um, I thought what I'd do is talk to you about um, the particular experiences I had when I was farming in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, because it had a very big influence on me, it had a big impact on my mental health, and I thought I might just sort of run through that, how I got into that situation, what happened to me, and then talk about the lessons that I learned and the the other issues that have occurred during my life. So uh, that's what I was planning to do. And so just to set it out, I was um, farming. I come from Esperance in Western Australia. And some of you might know that um, Esperance is a, is, is a relatively new farming area. It started to be developed in the 1950s. And my family went down there in the 1960s to clear farming land. Um, and I was there as a child, obviously, and, and grew up in an environment which was very much pioneering a lot, of, a lot of new land, a lot of people living rough and really trying to make their way in the world. Um, that was really my, my existence. And prior to that, in fact, my grandfather was, was a farmer and he was, he was at Gallipoli at the Charge at the Neck, which is a very famous uh, infantry battle. Um, he started farming in the 1930s in the wheat belt of Western Australia. And in the 1960s, we went to Esperance. I grew up down there. I went to school in Perth, so I went to a private school, a boarding school, um, not unlike you, and, and, um, and then I went home. And after doing a, a degree at the university, I did a, a Bachelor of Business in Agriculture. Was that the local university in um... uh, Well, it was one of the West Australian universities. Yeah. There's nothing local to Esperance. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. 800 kilometres away, but, yeah. but it was near Perth. And, um, and so I, I, in fact, was the first what we describe as agribusiness graduate in Australia. It was the first business degree in agriculture. And I was the first, yeah, and it's now, it's now quite a prominent degree. So um, after doing that, I went farming in Esperance in partnership with my father. And at that stage, my father had sold his farming land and was keen, he'd done a few other things and he was keen to get back into farming and I was keen to go. So we um, did a little bit of share farming, uh, which is where you're using other people's farm and putting a crop in and, and sharing in the profits. Um, and then we decided that we'd buy a, a new land farm at a place called Mount Beaumont, which was about 120 kilometres from town. It was a new land block, not entirely new land, about a third of it had been cleared at that stage. And I went out there really um, as a family endeavour, you know, with my parents backing me. They were living in town at the time. I went out there living in a caravan and tents and sheds um, to really clear this land and to turn it into a farm. And um, those circumstances, I, th- I think you can probably get a little bit of a flavour of, you know, the, the, if, the, if you like, the pioneering spirit and the adventure that, that we were doing. That was our lifestyle. We, you know, used to go way out into the beaches camping and fishing and, you know, living living a pretty uh, adventurous life. It was my background. My granddad actually was born on a farm. Up in, up, in, up, in, yeah, yeah. up in Punjab, and um, Punjab is like big farming land. It's like you know the men there are known to be tall. Like you know the rest of India is like largely vegetarian. Punjabis like you know they're known for like you know eating chicken, drinking beer, just like the stereotypical man. Yeah. And one of the major things that happened for him was like after the partition in nineteen forty seven 
when India and Pakistan became two separate um, countries, he had to, you know, leave all that behind and then educate his family. But like, I think after that, it became just the financial aspect of this is what makes me a man because they'd lost like that, that physical rigor, like that, that gives you that ego boost as well. Right. But like from that to a transition where he just had to be, it was the money. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. And then for you in that situation, like where essentially you started this out, how was that going for you financially? Like how are things like on both ends of the spectrum for you? Well, you know, it was it was very interesting. There's, there's uh, now, you know, at the time I was reasonably well educated in business, but I've obviously done a whole lot more education since. And I look back and I and I see what we're actually doing. My father had a number of assets. He had some farming land and um, sort of subdivision land near Esperance, and we were we were borrowing money against it. When I look back now, I realise the the folly of what we were doing. We were we were borrowing um, against land that was unproductive and non-income producing, relying on new land, which was highly unpredictable, to produce income and pay the debts, you know, service the debt. And I look back on it and I realise now, you know, it's a recipe for for risk, if you like, if not disaster. Yeah. And and we we got a little bit caught out. We we got very much caught out uh, in a number of factors. But... I think the um, the main thing that I'm really trying to convey is this idea that um, our my life at that stage was um, very much you know focused on the natural world, not on not on the emotional world. We were very preoccupied with how to grow a crop and how to make money and how to look after animals and how to service machinery. That was that was really. You know, it was a very, if you like, you know, how I'd describe it these days, living in objective reality. Absolutely. And um, uh, I, I think it's part of that culture that in in most farming communities that, and it's more so, it's less so these days, but in those days, you know, the idea of dealing with emotional issues or, you know, what if you, if you like, um, you know, the psychological issues that and the feelings that go with all of that, you know, was very much... Um, dis- dismissed is not the right word, but it, it, um, I wouldn't even necessarily say it was repressed. I can't quite think of the right way to describe it, but it never really entered your lexicon. You know, it just yeah. you just didn't even contemplate that you might think about how you felt. Yeah, you know that that was you know like that's not what you worry about. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. So it wasn't um, it wasn't. Or probably the right way to describe it, it wasn't in your consciousness, which sounds bizarre, really. Absolutely. That, you know, how you feel wasn't really in your consciousness. But for us, that is the case. And I think, you know, if I go and talk to my mates these days, I don't reckon, I reckon most of them still wonder about the price of wool or they're, you know, contemplating whether they should hedge their wheat or, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, or, you know, where they're going to get their next chemicals from. It's, it's very, very objective. That sort of reality is very objective. And... Um, so what, what we did, uh, you know, in starting out farming is we, we had a long way to go. It was not like we were set up. You know, we had to get set up. So we had to clear land. We had to get it productive. Yeah. Um, and then we had to get to sufficient scale to, to, to be a financially viable operation. And um, that, there's kind of an enormous pressure. You create the pressure yourself, I think. But there's a sort of a subconscious pressure that there's much to do. And that in itself, and I'm sure most people that are, you know, you're all familiar with, 
with mental health recognize you know the impact of stress yeah um, but you you create it yourself you know you 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 set your goals you set your aspirations and invariably as you can imagine in that sort of objective manly environment it was with your own hands like yeah. everything if it succeeded it was yeah. it was you and your yeah. own hands if it didn't succeed that was that was a mentality you put on yourself that weight you put onto yourself yeah and there was always more to do you know yeah. that that you were kind of working to your limits at yeah. all times and of course um i think in most instances uh you you stabilize you, you know if if things are, are going okay you have moments of stress and moments of success or, you know, reflection, if you like. When things aren't going okay, the islands, the islands of reprieve, if you like, from the stress yes. and the anxiety aren't there. It's, it's almost like sailing the ocean um, and you, there's no islands to go to. You yes. know, there's no point at which you can sit down and say, well, thanks, be grateful, have a holiday and start again. And I think, you know, if you look in a normal farming environment like a farming cycle you'd get to the end of harvest you know have a great christmas put your feet up go for a summer holiday come back and have another go yeah when you're not succeeding um you know it that whole experience getting to the end of the year harvesting finding it's disappointing or unable to give you what you want you don't have that reprieve there's no sense of satisfaction a sense of disappointment so it's almost a bit like a boiling pot when things aren't going right and they persistently don't go right. That's what happens. And you can see, you know, when you look at the publicity um, around men, farmers generally, not just men, but, but any farmers, particularly experiencing drought, yeah. you know, they're going through that sailing the ocean with yeah. no reprieve and they, they're battling to keep their sheep alive. Yeah. They've got no income. And we, saw pressure. That, we saw that this year with the bushfires, you know, taking a huge impact on yeah. people's ability to live, like, you know, taking away their prospect for, like, it's it's sort of as if, like, you know, their entire sailboat, like, you know, their boat's just yeah. blown up now and, like, you're swimming and, like, you're trying to yeah. find an island but there is no way to do it. Yeah, there's there's nowhere to go and, you, and you're constantly under pressure. Just one of the things I want to preface, in this conversation, one of the best things is that neither of us are, are mental health professionals. We don't know about the physiology of the brain. We don't know, like, you know, what chemical would have changed to endure it. It results in what emotion? It's just, you know, two lads having a chat. I think the bigger question there is like, how did you, how did you feel? Like, you know, more so like, was it apathy? Was it because now I've got to put up a cold hard front because like, you know, times are getting rough, cash isn't coming in. I can't show like, I can't show that emotion or I can't feel that emotion. What was what was going through your body like? Yeah, well, you know that's really interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it later because I want to just go through some of the events so that you get a feel for for yeah. what actually happened. But but uh, you know the obvious thing is anger. You know that that you at times get overwhelmed with anger, and um, uh, you know I look back uh, with great embarrassment. Uh, I'll mention embarrassment and shame later, but is that just is that is that because of the financial aspect more so? Yeah, so do you you know you you get into very stressful situations and you lose your temper. Yeah, you know, and and you you know you overreact if you like. You know, you're not more circumspect about it. So, but let me let me just uh, sort of recite to you. You know, I've sort of explained a little bit of how we ended up at Mount Beaumont. Um, let me just run you through some of the things that happened out there and where we got to and how it, it sort of got to this hiatus that, you know, meant resulted in a life-changing experience. So we were, we were farming 
in this environment for 12 years. And the last seven of those years, we were under duress. What age were you in at these times? So I was, um, I was really uh, at 23 when I started. Yeah, yeah. And I was at about 34. 34, right. Yeah, yeah when, I, when we, um, you know, everything sort of came to a hiatus. But um, so we imagine, uh, you know, wanting to clear a lot of land to do a lot of work. We needed money for tractors. We needed money for crops. And we were borrowing as fast as we could to, to do all this work. And as, as we were able to get capital, we were building sheds, putting up fences. And um, within the first two years, um, we had sort of a good start. And then the second year, you know, it started to come apart financially. And uh, coincidentally, at that point in time, Bob Hawke had come to power in Australia and there was a a fundamental change in monetary policy and interest rates took off. So I can't remember exactly, but, you know, I was a 23-year-old, borrowed half a million dollars at 6 or 7% or something. Yeah. And within 18 months, it was at about 15%, and then it continued to increase through to to 18%. And by the time we are on penalty interest rates, we were running at 24%. So what had happened is that I'd borrowed a, you know, no, not in my generation, certainly not my father's, even my grandfather's generation, had we seen that that change in in a risk factor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we were we were used to dealing with risk in terms of drought and management decisions, agronomic yeah. risk, but the economic risk and particularly the interest rate risk was was not unfamiliar to us. But but it was this was an extraordinary event. Unprecedented. And, and where we were sort of living on the edge and then we experienced, we'd, we'd sort of borrowed a whole bunch of money and then we were right um, in, in this environment where the interest rates took off. You can imagine it got out of control. Yeah. And so I think it was about 1984. At the end of 1983, um, so we started in 1980, uh, 1983 we could see the writing on the wall and I can remember going to the bank manager and saying, I don't think we can farm our way out of this because, you know, it was clear to me that unless we got bumper crops, we wouldn't get enough income to pay the interest. Yeah. And the bank manager said to me, he's a really nice bloke and I love him dearly, but he said to me, we, want, we, want you, we think that you can do it, we'd like you to keep going and we'll back you. So we borrowed money again and we did have a good crop, um, but... But the interest rate was so big that we burned another quarter of a million So it was in the bank's best interest to lend to you because their interest rate was so high and he was kind of feeding you into that dream of like, go back in there. Do you reckon reckon an aspect of why you accepted that was because you wanted to see it succeed so badly after so many years of... We're driven. Yeah. Absolutely driven. And I've got to say, no reflection on the bank manager because I believe the bank manager genuinely wanted us to succeed. We had a good rapport with him. He wanted us to get get through it. I think in a, in a way he personally probably was a little bit uh, uncomfortable with dealing with a bad situation. Yeah. You know, so a wind up or something like that was, you know, didn't he didn't like the idea probably. Might have influenced him. But so by about 1984, we were in deep trouble. You know, we could see that we couldn't trade out and we were then in an emergency, you know, what we no, no, emergency is the wrong word, crisis yeah. situation. We're in a crisis situation. And we were looking to how we could try and resolve things. Um, by that stage, I'd been, I got married. I married the local school teacher, just a beautiful woman. She had a um, four-year-old daughter. Yeah. And just to give you an idea, it was 55 k's down a gravel road to school. And my, and my stepdaughter, 
who was started at five in Western Australia. She's a five-year-old getting on a school bus at 7 a.m., driving 55 k's on the gravel road to get yeah. to school and then 55 k's back again every day. Yeah. And um, so that was a real challenge. And, and my wife, um, who was a school teacher, was sort of, uh, you know, trying to support me on the farm and make sure her daughter was okay. As things got tougher, my wife went back to, to teaching and to try and earn an income. So she and my daughter, my stepdaughter, were, were driving up and down the road every day to try and earn enough yeah. income to give us, give us food. It was it was pretty heavy going, and you know all the neighbours did it. The entire community was familiar with it. Did you feel really? some sort of responsibility to be the like the breadwinner in the household? Of like, course. Yeah. You know, I I mean, I I felt as if they had to resort to that. Yeah. Not not so much my daughter going to school, but certainly my wife. Because I couldn't provide. provide for, yeah. Couldn't provide. And do you reckon that in turn like would have led to some like residual anger that you let out on them yeah. at all? Like, yeah, well it did. Yeah. And and um, you know, I think it was nineteen by nineteen eighty seven, so we'd been married about three years. Um, you know, my wife got to the end of a tether and she she left. She went back to Perth. Uh, she did subsequently come back, but um, you know, it really got too much for her. And she her response, I, my response was to, to get angry and to get upset and, and to be frustrated. My wife was very quiet and her response really was to be, to be quiet, to not say anything. I couldn't talk to her about anything. It frustrated me. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I look back, I just feel so sad and so sorry for the way that all transpired because she didn't deserve to deal with the stress. She was trying to support me. Checking the financial aspect of... You know, because there wasn't bread on the table. Do you reckon that was the reason why, like the, the primary reason at least, why your marriage drifted apart? Um, absolutely. You know, it was the stress that I was under yeah, that drove her that away. drove her away. Drove her away. And, and it, was, it was, I'm sure it wasn't, you know, if you were to ask her, she, I don't think she'd say it was a financial situation. It was the... Also your response. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, psychological response. Absolutely. So do you think that in hindsight, if... If you'd managed it differently, if if like looking back at it, it hadn't been like let's say the finances are in the same situation, the cash isn't coming in. How do you reckon now, in the hindsight, you would have handled that response emotionally? If I had my wisdom now, um, I wouldn't have let it go on. I wouldn't have let the financial situation to develop to start with. Yeah. But I would have also not. I, I don't think you can insulate anybody from financial circumstances and stresses and worries. Absolutely. But the way you re, you you conduct yourself and the way you behave yourself is vitally important. And and I've got to say, Dev, you know, I've got to first to admit that I don't always behave myself the way I should. When, yeah. and I and I think most of us are like that. That in in a way you need to be able to let off steam. But you know, most most people at times choose bad behaviour. No, absolutely <laughs> right. No, like absolutely. Like there's a story that I could tell you as well. But like you know, this here's about you. But like yeah. You know, I was um, after year twelve. I finished on a high. Like throughout year eleven, I thought I was going to fail IB. I don't know if uh, I mentioned that, but the IB coordinator at my school actually sent my parents home an email. They said, "Um, yeah, we accept no responsibility for Dev failing at this point." And I don't know if you know what a brown family is like, but Indian families are very, mm. very strict academically. Um, you know, when he used to grow, my parents used to get hit with rulers, like on their hands, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't be allowed to leave the house if you got below a B. And that was, that was kind of ingrained in me. And, you know, um, I was 
And, you know, this guy sent out an email to my house saying, this guy's about to fail, not get an ATAR, go nowhere. Mm-hmm. And the shock from my house was, it went, you know, like it vibrated all the way from like Brighton to Geelong. And I could feel it. And I, I, I stepped it up. I, I was told that like, you know, I wasn't capable and I stepped it up and I, you know, achieved like a high ATAR, got into the course that I wanted forward, to. Yeah. Absolutely. But then at the end of that, I got into uni and my first response was just to blow off all that steam. Like I felt like I deserved it. My ego was inflated and I was just partying and partying and drinking and going out. And, and, the, and the result of that was getting so drunk that at one, after one party, I tried to jump over a, a rib feature and tore three ligaments in my knee. And, and I, I know. It's, story, it's yeah. interesting, isn't it, how that event yeah. ties back to the, the you know, psychology right. that's so, going on. Yeah. yeah, I mean, as a guy, you seem like you're, you're proud of your achievements. That inflates your ego. And then you let it out in ways that are probably not positive, like drinking, yeah. getting so, so slaughtered. Yeah. But like, honestly, I cannot remember a week of that night. Mm. And I don't think there's any other night like that that mum would not be happy hearing this, by the way. But like... I, I think I was like, you know, 15, 16 drinks, could be any could be any amount. I'd been cut off by the bartender and I was getting my friend to buy me drinks and then slip me, like, slip them to me, like, just not taking no for an answer. And I think that's what it's like with guys. Like, you know, instead of sitting down and having that conversation, like, how can I effectively blow off this steam? It's like, nah, let's just go out and get smashed. I think, uh, you know, we've got to remember we're all animals at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. And, um, and it's a matter of how much we, we choose to control ourselves or to, to manage ourselves is probably a better way to put it. The, um, so just going back to, to this situation, imagine, um, you know, the, the sort of the family stress coming home and my wife tired, exhausted, me, you know, working, you know, 14 hours a day. And, and uh, a daughter's equation. Labor. Yeah, and a daughter and, you know, just all uh, very stressful and dysfunctional and you imagine the pressure building as things finally got financially worse and worse. In, a, in about that stage, my mother was diagnosed because my mother and my, I was in partnership with them. My mother was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is you know cancer of the red blood cells. And I got a phone call from mum and uh, dad had had a major heart attack. And the irony of it was that um, you know he was feeling the stress too. Yeah, um, they were in the in the hospital in the accommodation on the hospital for, for country cancer patients and. He was within minutes of the emergency board and um, four o'clock in the morning he had a major heart attack yeah. and they had him down there but they reckon his heart stopped for, you know, a few minutes Yeah, and uh, they got him going again and, of course, that was a, that was a major Good event relief. for Dad. I believe that, yeah. yeah. So Mum was a nurse. Um, she's got a very, had a very interesting background but here's Mum as a cancer patient getting chemotherapy, yeah. nursing Dad. Yeah, there you and, go. And me that. being 800 kilometres away, unable to help and trying to desperately keep the farming operation going. Yeah. So you can see, you know, then there was the next level. Of- so you mentioned that you were grateful for the help that your wife's mother, I think, yeah. supported. I think a lot of men specifically sometimes, like, struggle to accept that help into their lives. Like, they have this big mentality of, like, I can do it on my own. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I've seen that with my own parents, Um, you know, Dad sometimes like no, nah, I, I can I can do this. I've got this. Like I'm yeah. like I've got this. I don't need I don't need you to support me. Were you at that stage? Like, was there any ego involved, or were you just like grateful for the for the help? And I don't think um, you know. I think my ego expresses itself in unusual ways. You know, like I'm over ambitious and um, I think I'm I always trying to, to do yeah. <laughs> do more than what I can do. But but I. Um, 
I don't really know why, Deb, but I, 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 I consider myself as um, not overly egotistical. You know, I don't, I don't expect people to pay attention to me or, or, you know, I don't really consider that I'm special in any way. Yeah. Um, I like to, I feel comfortable in a, in, with humility. Yeah. And I don't know that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm always willing to express gratitude, but... Um, the problem that I get into is being overly ambitious and, yeah. you know, trying to do too much or be too much or, um, uh, you know, that's where my ego sort of pushes me and that that brings its own problems. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't ungrateful, not, not by any means, but these were extraordinary circumstances really for most families and, and um, you know, sometimes it takes a period of reflection to recognise the good, the good things you know, I, I look back on it and felt that it was necessary at the time, but I don't really ever appreci- go back and appreciate, you know, the, the sacrifice that she made and my wife really made trying to get us through.
field it's hockey. About, yeah, field yeah, hockey, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those mental breaks that was yeah, always yeah. really important to me. I came back from playing hockey one day at, you know, 11 o'clock on a Saturday night and got home and the house was empty. My wife had packed everything up and gone. She'd gone permanently. Was that something um, that you'd seen coming? Was that something that... um, It shocked me at the time. It wasn't unexpected uh, because the whole thing was on tenderhooks. It was very desperate. But I was completely shocked when... And how'd you feel? How'd you feel? Like, like, I'm sure this would be really difficult for you. Yeah. But, like, opening that door and seeing she packed up. Yeah. How'd it feel? It's hard to describe, Dev. You know, I mean, devastated is a cliche almost, isn't it? But you just, you know, it, it, you know, you feel it in your guts and, um, and, and it burns, you know. To this day when I think about it, I can remember seeing her. Um, she, she ultimately left town completely, but I saw her. She moved to house in, this, in town and I saw her in the distance in the supermarket, you know, about two weeks later. And it nearly killed me. It really, I just, I, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. high school sweetheart or like, yeah. Um, no, but I loved her dearly. Yeah. And, but I, I, you know, wasn't able to control my own behaviour and, um, you know, it was, it was not, a, I, I don't blame her at all. You know, I mean, she, she was at a point, and I'm looking back, you know, it's obvious now, but she needed to, you know, if you like, protect her daughter to not put a daughter through unnecessary stress. Absolutely. And she needed to look after herself. And I think that she'd sort of got to a point of recognising that the situation was a bit of a lost cause and that what the outcome was going to be was very predictable and I mean, she like, needed to take charge of her own life. Been digging a hole for a while. There'd been a separation prior to that. Yeah. And she'd gotten back and she hadn't really seen yeah. much of a change, I guess. Like, yeah. it actually just like deteriorated further. So, yeah you're in like this level of like your financial stress is deteriorated and now that she's gone what's like the first thing that pops into your head like mm. in terms of like what's what's my next step like yeah well it's it, it's interesting i can't vividly remember you know whether i felt like killing myself i don't think i ever did i was yeah, but definitely some level of depression yeah like, yeah, yeah yeah well i'll get to that <laughs> The, uh, it was definitely, um, you know, it was a huge mental impact. I, I, I didn't, it, it was an experience, the emotional feeling um, of her leaving and, and then seeing her and, and, you know, it was the most significant emotional thing that had ever happened to me by miles. I, I felt like it was, it was going to kill me the way I felt. Interesting, isn't it? How like you'd spent your entire life working on this farm and this farm being like your, your sense of ego, like the sense of like, you know what makes you feel like a man, and it takes just. And she she walks away, and that that undoes it, and that that shows you what really really mattered to you yeah. in those moments. That yeah. it wasn't your ego and your anger, and and that that wasn't like you know that wasn't yeah. there. That that didn't matter. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I look back now. You know, I would have given it all away to have kept absolutely kept that relationship intact, and um, you know, and it hurt me deeply. So, um, so there I was um, in a situation that um, I, I, it was untenable for me. I just couldn't, I couldn't contemplate the future. And I think that the, and I'll talk more about this as we go. But, but the shame and embarrassment is the thing. I think you know, if if I was to say, what should men most be most scared of? It is the way that they respond 
respond to shame and embarrassment. Because in my mind, most men, and I, and I think about, you know, domestic violence and I think about violence generally and, I, you know, invariably people, men, are, are largely driven by shame. And that's, I think, I think in, more, in more recent times that's been validated by research. Yeah. And, and sadly, um, you know, I think in, in domestic situations, um, it's the humility that goes with failure or the inability to, to achieve what you want to emotionally, to be able to emotionally satisfy your partner or, or to even to be able to the, the humility of failing financially, anything like that that brings shame to a man so is the thing that drives Yeah. Yeah. And... and I look back on it and I, and, I, and I can remember the terrible shame that I felt. And it was at those moments that, you know, I had a big group of friends in Esperance, so I was very much part of the community and I was trying to, to um, trying hard to succeed at what I was doing. And I, and I remember vividly, and this is probably one of the most sensitive things that came out of it, is that I look now, I looked, I can, I, I looked, subsequently at how my my friends reacted to me and um you know my my parents and I stuck together like glue and I built an incredible relationship with my mother um who was an incredible woman and and my father and I were friends right through to his death we were we were very close um some of the people that I considered my best friends um, felt uncomfortable being with me when I was going through this experience. And some of the people that I didn't know so well absolutely rallied around. And I can remember one guy in particular, one night when I was feeling really bad, I was trying to go out and socialise and I was really struggling. He just took me aside, took me for a drive, just kept talking to me. And I look back and there's two, two families really that I look back and I say, you know, they are remarkable people because of the way they embraced um, my circumstances. Um, and the people that I thought most of at the time often weren't the ones that were there to embrace me. That's interesting. And, and um, being, being emotionally embraced is really important when you're really... It's interesting. Like, um, I think often when you hear stories, it's it, like, you know, especially for me, I try to like... You know, integrate them into my own life and see like where have I seen this before mm. and you know a lot of the things you describe tend to be similar with my dad my dad who was like you know uh he graduated from like a very good university he's always like a very smart guy but yeah you know he went um, into marine engineering and kind of came out of it and it, there was really a point where there was nothing going for him mm. and you know even family members the people that he respected looked up to his entire life were just like shunning him mm. like you know not, like looking at him with like this this like looking at him with shame and whether that mm. was internal or mm. whether that was actually what they were portraying that's what he felt mm. and it was the, and he said it was it was the people that that I didn't expect mm. and it was me at the end of the day that had that, that made that change mm. it wasn't it's not like you know until you get to rock bottom you don't know who the mm. rock is mm. um it's interesting you say that and then like those relationships do you think they've stood to this day because of because of that experience like Certainly, from my perspective, yeah, I look out for those families. Yeah, you know, I, I make a point of 
you know, constantly knowing their welfare and knowing exactly what they're up to. Helping out if you can. Yep, absolutely. They've never really needed my help to the same extent, but um, but I'm I'm just very grateful for their friendship. And I and I had one family sort of take me in, which I'll get to. Um, but but uh, you know, uh, gratitude is is too modest really too modest. For, for the way I feel about people who've helped me.